Welcome to Primity, where we find simple techniques to help address modern problems for our primitive bodies. My name is Andrew Pafford, and I'm a health and wellness professional with over a decade of experience helping Olympic athletes, desk jockeys, and seniors achieving their goals and improving their quality of life. Our purpose with Primity is to distill results of scientific findings into easily approachable strategies and techniques to improve health and wellness for everyday life. Today, we'll be answering a couple more questions from the adoring fans. Starting off with, how many days should you take to recover after a big lift? So we can almost extrapolate this to a little bit more of not necessarily lifting heavy, but we'll say a hard workout. So a number of factors need to be taken into consideration because, of course, everyone's different. So right out of the gate, the answer depends. First and foremost is experience. Are you used to working out? and engaging in physical activity. If you are brand new, New Year's resolution, you're getting off the couch, used to doing a whole lot of nothing, you're gonna need some time to recover. Your tissues are gonna be stressed like they haven't been stressed in a long time. Your body's not quite as resilient as it needs to be, so there needs to be a little bit more play in between. If you are a paid professional athlete, you can go days and days and days of being active all the time with needing to take breaks every couple of days or so. So it really depends on experience. There's a big factor that you can look to in just a second to kind of piggyback off of that, but out of the gate, we're looking at experience. You ought to know where you fall on that spectrum of, have you been active for a week, a couple months, a couple years, and even religiously. And something else to consider too is, have you taken a break? So if you were an athlete all through your high school and collegiate career, and then you went into the real world, took six months off finding a job, moving, getting settled into a new routine, and now you're deciding to get back into the gym, those six months kind of undo a whole lot of those years of activity when it comes to the integrity of your tissues. So have you been active recently? Keep that in mind. Just because you remember how to do things doesn't mean your body's willing to do those things. So experience can play a role, and recent level of activity definitely plays a big role. Another thing to also take into account is your lifestyle habits, the things that are going to aid in your recovery. Talking about nutrition, hydration, sleep, and other lifestyle factors like stress that could be affecting your body's ability to recover. So obviously, if you're not eating enough or if you're not hydrated enough, those are going to increase your prevalences of injury or even lengthen the time that it's going to take your body to recover. If I'm not eating enough to repair my muscle tissue because I'm not getting enough protein, those muscles are not going to bounce back as fast for my next bout of exercise. So if your nutrition is inadequate, that can affect how long it takes for you to recover. Hydration plays a huge, huge role in tissue health. So in terms of recovery, if you're not drinking enough, or I should say if you're not hydrating adequately, because that also includes electrolytes, if you are not consuming enough fluids that are actually being absorbed and retained by the body, then those tissues are going to become more brittle and more likely to become injured for your next routine. So you might even feel kind of slow, sluggish, stiff, all symptoms of being dehydrated or underhydration. Sleep is another huge factor. Most of our repair happens when we sleep. So even if you're used to being active, if you are 
sleeping like less than six hours on a nightly basis, you're going to be running out of steam. Your body is going to be sore for longer. You're not going to have enough energy. You're not going to be as explosive. And it's going to increase your prevalence for injury. So all the good things happen when you sleep. So if you're serious about staying active and working out on a very consistent basis, got to be putting in the hours in the bed. And then finally, stress. Stress is going to affect your body's ability to reset, to calm down, and to allow the maintenance and repair to happen. You got to imagine we're very primitive. So it's the old running from the tiger metaphor of way, way a long time ago in the eons past when we didn't have homes and agriculture and things like that. Stress was you're running because you don't want to get eaten, right? So if your body is in survival mode, aka I've got adrenaline and cortisol pumping through my veins, my body's more worried about staying alive and overcoming the current endeavor. All of the repair, maintenance, and recuperation comes when those levels drop down, when I'm in a non-stressed state. So if my body is constantly stressed, it's not going to be devoting any of its energies towards the repair and maintenance phase. It's still trying to be in the don't get eaten phase. So if I'm always stressed, I'm not able to repair and recover and rebuild for my last workout. So stress management actually plays a huge factor as well, which in turn can affect sleep and all of the other things. They're all very intertwined. Last but not least, and this kind of ties into experience, which I mentioned earlier, is self-awareness or body awareness. If you don't feel good, don't go work out. It's not rocket science. Even if you are experienced and you think you're eating right, you may have had a bad night's sleep and you don't realize it, and it's just not a great day, then it's not a great day. Don't force it to happen. So that body awareness can also play into experience as well of even if you've been doing things for quite some time, if you go to the gym that day and you get started and it just seems like everything's really heavy and you're struggling to find the motivation, in spite of experience and all the other factors you have going for you, it might just be an off day. This is where something like heart rate variability might be a useful tool to have because you might make a decision that you don't think is a big deal, like having a glass of wine for dinner, but you would be surprised how that can really dramatically affect your sleep and your heart rate variability. And there's a lot of science that's been showing that Heart rate variability is a huge predictor in performance. So if you have a device that you can acquire that will help you track and show heart rate variability, that's going to give you a big indicator before you even get to the gym about how that session is likely going to go. But it's also going to help you identify certain lifestyle factors as well of I'm having pretty good days and then all of a sudden I wake up Saturday morning and my heart rate variability is trash and I go, well, what did I do? to warrant this huge change in number. Oh, well, that's right. I had something to drink last night. Probably shouldn't do that. Or maybe I stay up all night playing video games and I got bad sleep. Probably shouldn't do that. So that can help you identify certain lifestyle choices and factors. But sometimes you just have an off day. The body's just not feeling it. If you're overtraining, so even if you're hitting your hydration, your sleep, your activity, and trying to manage your stress, and you're overtraining because you haven't taken any days off in like two weeks, that's going to affect your heart rate variability. And so that can be the sign that says, hey, you need to take it easy. Now it's time for a rest day. So 
How many days should you recover after big lift? It depends. If you're not used to doing it or if you live a pretty bad lifestyle, you can need a day or two. If you're used to doing it and you're treating your body pretty good and you're giving it all the things it needs, you could go days before really needing to take a break and hit it hard day after day after day. Eventually, everyone does need a break, some more so than others. So there is no set golden rule of what you should or shouldn't be doing. It all depends. But those are some factors that you can put in your back pocket to keep in mind of when you should be getting after it or should you be taking a break. All right, I think we've beaten that one enough. Let's now go to, ooh, this is an interesting one. Haven't heard about this concern before. Taking creatine for middle-aged men, is it necessary for muscle size? Fascinating. All right, well, first and foremost, what is creatine and what does it do? Creatine is technically an amino acid. However, it is not an essential amino acid, which means we don't use it to build any of our tissues. So there's lots of amino acids out there. Only some do we need for our survival and function. Creatine is not a building block per se, so it is not a part of muscle. So is creatine used in muscle synthesis? No. So directly speaking, creatine does not affect muscle size directly. However, indirectly, one could make a... Hmm, pretty moderate argument, I'd say. And that's because creatine's role in the body is actually part of an energetic pathway. To put it in very reductive terms, we kind of have three metabolic pathways for generating energy. We have our explosive, our anaerobic or without oxygen, and then our aerobic or with oxygen. So explosive is like eight to 10 seconds. This is where, if you want to envision in terms of sport, this is like Olympic lifting or powerlifting. You're doing something for literally a couple seconds and then you're done. Shot put, a lot of the track and field events like discus throwing, you wind up javelin throw, you throw it and you're done and that's it. You just have one big explosive movement and that's it. This is also known as the creatine phosphate system. So it's literally creatine with a phosphate stuck on the end. And the way our body stores energy is in the form of molecules. The way that it accesses that energy is by breaking those molecules down. In this particular instance, it breaks the phosphate off of creatine. So when that bond between phosphate and creatine is broken, energy is released, our bodies utilize that energy to perform movement, and it's done. The point with creatine is that it is very easy to knock that phosphate off. So it's readily accessible and very quickly to do so. So it is ideal for an explosive system. When you need energy and you need energy now, creatine phosphates are go-to. Caveat is that because it's so accessible and it falls off so easily, you'll burn through it all in a matter of seconds. And so it's only good for eight to 10 seconds. That's why when someone says jump, you can jump really high for the first two, three, maybe four jumps. And then after that, you're not jumping so high anymore because you're no longer oping, operating in the creatine phosphate system. It's all gone. And it takes time to recover, to put those phosphates back on. It has to utilize energy from storage, go through all the fun processes to slap them back on for the next time you need to be explosive. So creatine phosphate or the creatine is used in our explosive metabolic pathway. So when would we utilize that in our workouts? Well, when we're lifting heavy. 
if you are doing high rep sets like 15, 20, 30 reps, then you are not being very explosive. You're kind of in it for the long haul. It's like the metaphorical term of jogging with weights, basically, because you're there for a while until you get tired. Creatine is good for your big, heavy lifts, so for strength gain. So what that means is that if you are supplementing with creatine, this can affect positively your ability to lift heavier weights, which then translates into helping to sustain muscle performance, size, what have you, functioning, strength gains. So in a indirect chain of events, creatine can help sustain muscle performance or size or strength, but with that big caveat of you already have to be working out doing the work. You cannot just take creatine and expect to maintain your size. You'll definitely atrophy. Ironically, creatine, one of the side effects, is known to make you retain water. So if you do start supplementing with creatine that you're not already accustomed to doing, you'll actually kind of puff up a little bit. So that is a known side effect for creatine. Another potential hazard, just to throw it out there because there's been some argument over whether or not it's entirely true or not, but some literature has shown that when you take creatine for extended periods of time, at high, high levels, some levels that your body typically would not produce on its own, as a way of maintaining order and balance within the body, your body produces its own creatine to help sustain its own creatine phosphate system. If you're adding more creatine than it thinks is necessary, it'll stop making its own creatine. So then that way the levels kind of fall back to normal. The caveat is that when you go off the exogenous or the supplemental creatine, your body doesn't necessarily ramp back up its own production. So one of the fears or cautions of taking supplemental creatine is that if you're on it for too long with levels that are too high, you could actually stop synthesis of your own natural creatine. So if you ever went off of that, your whole creatine phosphate system is now boogered. So it's a little bit of kind of fear-mongering and definitely something to take into consideration. That's why a lot of um, advice for people supplementing with creatine is that they have a what they call a quote-unquote loading phase to kind of get them to spike a little bit to see the performance increase and then lowering that amount into a maintenance phase. So that way the levels are not so high that your body doesn't improve that it kills its own creatine production but that you're able to kind of maintain those slightly higher levels to help give your performance the boost. And then just to make sure you are able to produce your own, you then cycle off of creatine for a week or so so that your body still feels the need to produce its own so that you don't negatively impact your natural creatine production. Now, again, this is debated. This is just one side of the coin. I'm not saying that is... 100% true or 100% false. It is just something to consider. So that is up to you to do your own research about whether you think that's even true. And if it might have a modicum of truth, trying to find a program that might involve cycling, if you think that it's a worthwhile investment, but you don't want to put all your eggs in that basket just in case those negative consequences do come to fruition. So those decisions are up to you to do your own research. 
I've just given you the nice disclosure that that could be a thing and that you are 100% responsible for your actions. I am not a doctor and I do not play one on the internet. So you have been warned, but there have been a lot of ev lot of literature that shows supplementing with creatine does have a positive effect, a statistically significant effect on performance with exercise. So it does work. It might have a side effect. You have been warned, be the adults and make your own decisions. But that being said, does it directly affect muscle size? No. Indirectly, it could affect training, which would help support it. So it depends. <laughs> All right. Oh boy. A little bit of a facepalm moment here now. What core specific exercises are most effective? Ay, 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 ay. Hmm. Let's see. Um, well, for what? <laughs> What core specific exercises are most effective for what? Are they most effective for size, endurance, functioning? Uh, well, let's just answer all three then, I suppose. What are what core specific exercises are most effective for strength? We'll assume that one to start. Well, your quote-unquote core muscles, so we can assume that that is including all of the layers of the abdominals, low back, your pelvic floor, and your diaphragm all together make your core or your trunk, as I would like to call it, your functional trunk, not just your abs, but everything that helps stabilize your midsection. So if we're talking strength, well, they're muscles just like every other muscle in your body. And the way that you get muscles stronger is by loading, progressive loading. The stronger the contraction, the more likely you are to stimulate the strength response out of muscles. So having to add load or intensity to your midsection is a little bit different. You can't just curl weights like you would with, you know, dumbbells to do bicep curls or a tricep extension. So you have to get a little creative with how do I add intensity to my midline to make my core air quotes stronger. So uh, a couple fun ones, you may need to Google some of these to throw out there, but to get ideas of how to add intensity to your ab workouts or core workouts, excuse me, are some overhead weighted sit-ups. So if you're lying on your back, you're holding a plate or a dumbbell vertically, so kind of over your shoulders, over your chest. And as you sit up, you continue to reach through the ceiling. Arms need to continue to remain vertical at all times until you're sitting all the way up with your arms then over your head. I strongly advise YouTubing a number of videos to kind of get an idea of what the average of these put together should look like. Of course, people are gonna have one or two spins on this, but you should have a pretty reasonable idea if you can go online and YouTube two to three videos of what you're supposed to be doing. The overhead weighted sit-ups is a good one. Um, if you have access to a glute ham developer or a GHD, you can do weighted sit-ups on that, just holding on and doing a sit-up. Uh, if you want to harken back to the, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Bruce Lee made popular the aptly named Dragon Flags. Those are a fantastic way to leverage load on your abs. and You got to be a beast to do a full Dragon Flag. 
but even going a fraction of the way down is probably going to place more load on your midline than a sit-up ever could. So I strongly recommend looking at that. Just be very careful because the more intense the movement gets, the greater the room for error, which is code for injury. So do not throw yourselves into these movements. Check your ego at the door. Don't go do these and get hurt and say, oh, Andrew told me that these were good exercises. Anything that's worth its weight in effectiveness also comes with risk. So play it safe and be smart. There's a lot that can go wrong with these movements. You've been warned. Um, and then finally, back extensions and, and or good mornings. So basically using load, but now for your posterior chain or the back half as well. So those would be some ideas to get you started with loading your midline for strength. So with those, you can either add range of motion or add load so that your midline has to engage harder. Therefore, you're triggering the strength response for adaptation. So now, adding in again for number two, what core specific exercises are most effective for endurance? So endurance is all about time under tension. The longer the muscle activates, the more it's going to adapt to activate longer. So if you're doing something like running or cycling, where you need that core to engage, not necessarily very strongly, but over and over and over again, then you need to be doing movements that are higher in volume and not as high in intensity. So holding positions for an extended period of time or higher rep things. So you've got planks, the quintessential holding a plank, side planks to get more of the oblique activation, Bird dogs are some good ones that you can do to work on oppositional control. Windshield wipers are also good for some good oblique work. And then for some more back work, you can do supermans or flutter kicks while you're in a superman. Again, YouTube half of these, not really here to go into great detail of what these are. These are just some quick suggestions at which point you now have enough ammunition to go educate yourself further. Now, finally, I would argue a probably the most important one, which could go both ways, either strength or endurance. But what I'm a huge fan of is functional. You're not just training the muscles, you're training the muscles to prepare for how they're going to be utilized, arguably on a day-to-day -day basis, or what they were actually designed to be used for. Your trunk wasn't designed to hold you in a plank for an extended period of time. It was designed to have you do something, not just hold a weird position on the floor, but to pick up something, to run with something, you name it. So some exercises to better prepare you functionally, we've got bear crawls. Bear crawls are really nice because they help your body move in opposition. Now, out of the gate, yeah, you don't crawl like a bear where you're on your hands and your feet and you're running across the floor like a dog or a bear would. However, bear crawls, are a developmental milestone into learning how to run and to walk. This is why infants crawl. So if you ever watch an animal move, they move in opposition. So if their front left limb steps, their rear right limb steps at the same time. Children do the same thing. When we walk, when our left foot swings out in front, our right hand swings out in front. We move in opposition. 
our shoulders rotate. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So in order for our left leg to reach out farther, our right arm will swing out just as far. If our left hip rotates forward to reach out to get a longer gait, our right shoulder will turn to reach out to get a longer gait. We are opposing so that equal action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. If you want to do a fun, awkward test, try to step with the same, same side movement. So if your left leg goes forward, swing your left arm forward. It's awkward as sin, and it's not going to work very well. If you lose that ability to move in opposition, that's going to affect your gait. This is very common for a lot of people who've lost what we call thoracic rotation, or the ability for them to rotate through their spinal, um, spinal column, their vertebral column, which is very, very noticeable in a lot of the elderly population. This is why the notable shuffle tends to become prevalent. When you can't rotate, your shoulders and hips can't reach out to get that long stride, so you're stuck with like maybe a foot in terms of distance that you can step before that's it. And so you take very short but quick steps, hence the shuffle. So bear crawls are a fantastic exercise to make sure that your core is engaged to stabilize your spine to allow that rotation to occur, but maintain control at the same time. So. Bear crawling is good. Banana rolls is another one to work with, again, developmental abilities that we lose when children learn to roll over. So this is even before they bear crawl. Learning how to roll over is one of the first things that they do after establishing hamstring length or happy baby, as some of you may know it from yoga. Um, but being able to flip yourself over is clutch. That is just... 101 core control of can I engage my abs to lift myself up and roll over or vice versa engage my back to get off my stomach to get back onto my back. So you can YouTube banana roll. They're pretty straightforward on how to execute and they are not easy. They are very, very effective. I still have grown adults who rue doing banana rolls to this day because they are not easy. And then of course, putting all that together into the big quintessential movements, the squat and the deadlift. You can do light squats, whether you're doing air squats or lightly loaded squats for higher volume to work on endurance. So you're not just training your trunk, but you're also training your legs as well. And then deadlift, again, same deal. You can do endurance or you can do strength. So you're able to work on core strength or core endurance, all depending on how you load the squat or the deadlift, the difference is you're incorporating it into a movement and you're knocking out a whole bunch of other muscle groups at the same time. So arguably, I would probably spend more time on those, assuming you can perform a bear crawl or a banana roll correctly. If you can't activate your core to activate or in order to perform those movements, if you can't activate your core well, to perform a bear crawl or you can't activate your core well to perform a banana roll, you are not going to be activating your core well during a squat or a deadlift and that's going to set you up for injury. So that's why I throw out those two exercises first to play with to make sure you can even execute those because if you're not able to do the basic baby stuff, literally the basic baby developmental movement patterns, I don't know how you're doing the full grown adult squatting and deadlifting movement patterns, at least not without big compensations that are going to set you up for injury. So 
I would look up a video for bear crawls and banana rolls and get a strong grasp on how to execute those and throwing those into your workout regimen for your functional core training. Well, that's it for today. Please feel free to keep sending us in those questions. It's always wonderful to see where people are in their health and wellness journeys. And until next time, I'm Andrew for Primity. See you next episode.